All right, we're in Luke 14. You can turn there. It's kind of a long text. So, I ask for your patience as we read. One Sabbath, when he uh, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him closely. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are, uh, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who he invited, When you give a banquet, a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, And you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, For everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I will go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, 
none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we may indeed see Jesus high and lifted up, that we might see his incredible majesty and supremacy, that believing in his supremacy we might see his sufficiency. Open our eyes to the hope to which we have been called in Jesus. Open our eyes to the immeasurable greatness of his power at work in us and for us who believe in the good news of Jesus Christ. And we ask this for his glory and for our good. Amen. I get the funny feeling that most of you probably didn't watch the Oscars this past week. It's something I used to do on a regular basis, but uh, I haven't done it in a long time, just because, well, I guess most of the movies they seem to think are really interesting. I don't, but that's okay. The Oscars are interesting in a number of ways because, in a sense, they celebrate our royalty. There's red carpets. There's beautiful gowns. There's uh, men in tuxedos. There's plenty of security. It's the elite, so to speak, of our culture, and the normal people need not apply or try to get in. Something strange in some ways about the Oscar. For they all get gifts. Why do the rich need gifts? for attending the Oscars. And so there's much that's probably a bit strange about this whole process. And there was much that Jesus found strange about these feasts that he was invited to as a rabbi. A big idea this morning is that Jesus joins with the marginalized for their salvation. Let's start off with the reality that Jesus heals us of our craving for more. The setting of all of that takes place that we read this morning is a Sabbath day meal, which was usually the best meal of the week because everyone was there. Everyone was around. It was sort of almost like um, if you watch Blue Bloods, their Sunday meals, they're all together, and it's the best meal of the week. There's no leftovers. Uh, there's none of that. It was good, even though it was prepared the day before. This particular Sabbath meal was given at the house of a leading Pharisee, a ruler of the Pharisees, it says. And so here you have a man of great standing within the community, and he's fulfilling his role in society by offering hospitality to this traveling rabbi. That still happens today. There have been times when I've done pulpit supply at other churches. I remember once in upstate New York, and after the service they said, Steve, let me take you to lunch. So these things happen. And this particular Pharisee was fulfilling his role within the community because that was expected of him as a man of means to keep his eye open for those who were traveling like Jesus and to bring them into his home. He went beyond, so to speak, I think, some of the fears he might have had about Jesus in extending this invitation to him. And Jesus accepts this invitation despite 
his ongoing conflict are numerous conflicts with the Pharisees. We've talked about a lot of them as we've looked at these meals in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus sees them as opportunities for ministry because he's going to, in the midst of them, declare truth to these people. But we see, even as it starts, that they are keeping their eyes on him. They are watching him carefully. They're scrutinizing him. Every little move he makes does not escape their attention and their notice. I'm reminded of Psalm 37. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. They're not watching Jesus in order to say, how they can become more godly people, but they're watching Jesus so they might find reason to accuse Him and destroy Him. This is a wicked kind of watching, not a godly kind of watching. And so Luke notes, behold or look, kind of ironic in that sense. They're watching and here comes, look, there's a man before him who had dropsy. Now, there are details that Luke doesn't kind of lay out for us that I really wish he would have laid out. Is this a man like some others who, knowing he was sick and knowing there was no help for him, had heard about Jesus and had come in faith seeking to be healed? Or rather, was this a situation where he is planted there by the Pharisees as a trap to see what will Jesus do with this sick man? Most of us don't use the term dropsy today. That's an old-fashioned sort of term. We use the word edema. And still, most of us who aren't medical people have no idea what that is. Okay, It is a painful accumulation of fluid under the skin. And so, swelling that takes place. And swelling is often painful because of uh, just the nerve endings and the stretching of the skin and everything else. One of the interesting parts of this is that it's often accompanied by an unquenchable thirst. You're thirsty, and you drink, and you swell, and you're thirsty, and you drink, and you swell. And so it's a vicious cycle that often takes place. Many people in that day, okay, not necessarily our day, but that day, uh, saw edema or dropsy as a result of gluttony. Uh, And it was used in ancient literature as a metaphor for greed and lust, the person who can never have enough. And so, understood within that cultural context, Mr. Dropsy, as I'm going to call him, um, I think that's what, what John Bunyan probably would have called him, Mr. Dropsy, is seen as as sin, uh, sick and sinful. Okay, he's not just sick, but also seen as sick and sinful. And Jesus is going to address both of those things. But the reality of dropsy and its metaphorical understanding is that our our addictions and our idols are, in fact, never satisfied. Uh, we always want more, and usually these things cause us great pain, both in their lack and in their satisfaction. And so, while none of us wants to be Mr. Dropsy, if we're honest, we often are 
Mr. Dropsy. We too struggle with our cravings, with our longings, and are never satisfied. But what's the issue that's going on here? Jesus brings it right to the forefront of all of these things when he says, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? See, Jesus is noting that there is a conflict within Scripture, so to speak. Not a, not a conflict so much as one that is created by a misunderstanding of the Scriptures. But there's a conflict between the Sabbath rules, which we heard about from Exodus 30, 31. No work should, is supposed to be done on the Sabbath. And other laws which called for situations in which work was required, such as Deuteronomy 22, You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him and lift them up again. And so Jesus is pointing out this fact. He's saying, what am I to do with this man who is sick before me? Is that the kind of work that is prohibited, the, the work of healing him, of restoring him to wholeness, or is that prohibited? Am I, or am I free to do that? And unfortunately, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't even answer his question. They sat there and watched. The hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees is revealed as Jesus kind of continues and he notes that if it was their son who had fallen into a well, if it was their ox that had fallen to his well, they would quickly run to the rescue. They would not say to their son, sorry, 12 more hours until sundown and then we'll come get you. Hang in there. And that's what they want Jesus to do to this man, Mr. Dropsy. I know you've been suffering with this condition for untold number of days, but hang in there and Jesus might get to you when the sun goes down and it's a new day. And Jesus does not wait for a new day. Jesus does not even wait for them to answer. Jesus heals or restores this man to wholeness and then sends him away. His, his healing is meant to be a picture of salvation. That Jesus has been dealing with not just the physical man, but also with the man in his spirit. Dealing not just with the sick, but the sinful. Dealing with his cravings. And there's a good reminder for us there as we think about this and think about the fact uh, that we too can be like Mr. Dropsy, that we are intended by Jesus to bring our cravings and our needs to Him so that we can be made whole. That He is the only one who can heal your dropsy, your spiritual edema, your swollenness, your unquenchable thirst. He's the only one. The Pharisees couldn't do it. The scribes couldn't do it. I can't do it, for I struggle with my own. But it is Jesus and Jesus alone who was able to do this. 
And so confess your cravings to Jesus and receive his fullness for your wholeness. Secondly, I want us to understand what's going on here is that Jesus reverses the social standing that we crave. That, in fact, is one of the things that we crave, and that is what Jesus is about to expose in the midst of all of this. As a sick and sinful man, Mr. Dropsy had no standing in Jewish society. He was unclean. He was the bottom rung. He was the outsider. We're not even sure how we got through the door. Leads me to believe it probably was a plant or a trap uh, designed to trap Jesus. Okay. Jesus begins to address their clamoring for social status. He notes that they're all looking to zoom in on the seats of honor. The special seats closest to the host. They're, they're climbing, uh, the social climbing is, has corrupted the God's intention for their feasts. It's made a good thing into a very kind of bad thing. In that day, in that place, what we see is that you often gained or lost status on the basis of who attended your feast. You had to invite the right people. The Oscar crowd, perhaps. Not the wrong people, like Mr. Dropsy. Let's kind of keep him off on the side in the corner. He's, he's not that important here. And, and he's not important because Mr. Dropsy offers me nothing. And so it's really about what that person can do for you. You wanted to invite people so that you put them in your debt Significant people would be in your debt and that they would then repay you. And so their feasts had become more about honor and shame instead of love and compassion. They were like a game of musical chairs to see who can get closest to the host, the most significant or important person at that particular party. They were very much like the Oscars. Who can make the most profound political statement or social statement that day? Who gets all the cred on the news? Not about love, not about compassion. For you see, even in the Old Testament, I shouldn't say that phrase, in the Old Testament, what we find is the feasts were meant to be opportunities for compassion. For instance, in Deuteronomy 16, when it's talking about the feasts, and in particular this is the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's similar in the other ones, it says, You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. And so this feast was not an opportunity to make yourself known as someone important, but these feasts were intended to bring in those that society had often discarded and seen as unimportant. And you were to rejoice with them. And so the feasts were intended to be a time of compassion and mercy. And so the these, lar- these other feasts, these less important feasts, because... What's happening here in Luke 14 is not 
Feast of Tabernacles, but still it was meant to reflect that reality of bringing in the less fortunate. Why is this in Luke's Gospel? Why did Luke decide to put this and particularly the extended aspect of this? I can understand why he might put the healing in there, but now why is he meddling? Why is Jesus meddling? And I think we understand that when we go back to the beginning of Luke's Gospel when he, ta- when he has Mary's song, the Magnificant. And she rejoices in God her Savior. And, and part of the, one of the significant things within that song is the reality that God is going to reverse the order, the social order. That those who are on top are going to be brought low and those who are down low are going to be brought up by this great salvation that the Messiah is going to bring. And so Luke keeps returning to this theme. This theme that those who are adept at climbing the social ladder are going to be cast down. while those who are not adept are going to be raised up. Let's not confuse this with a game, the game of shoots and ladders. Okay, Most of us have probably played that game. Maybe we didn't pay attention to that game. I've mentioned this before, but it's been a while since I have kids. I'm reminded of this. I didn't remember it from my childhood. But whenever you see a ladder, you see the kid doing something good. And so you, you, you get to climb the ladder to a higher place as a reward. And at the top of all of the chutes, there's a picture of a kid doing something wrong. And so this is a game of works righteousness. <laughs> this is, chutes and ladder, it is! You laugh at me, it is! Because when you do something good, you go up the ladder. You do something bad, you fall down the chute. In this case, it's all about grace. It's not because you do something good that you're able to rise, but that you are lifted up by the Savior Himself. It is not because you've, uh, well, usually if you're on the top, you've done something wrong, but you're cast down from your sin in that sense, but it's because you have not clung to the Savior. So, Jesus returns to this, and he addresses this with as he sums it up. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The social climbers will be tossed down. The ones who are on the bottom and unable to climb, they shall be raised up. The marginalized, the lowly, the bottom feeders, whatever you want to call them, the, the people whom life has not shined upon, who have had a very miserable experience, many of them are going to be lifted up by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not coming up with something new, but he's reflecting what we see in Proverbs 25. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here! than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. As we ponder this, let us remember that it is Jesus, as we see in Philippians 2, the exalted Son who humbled Himself 
became a slave, obedient, even to the point of death. He disadvantaged himself for the advantage of other people. That Jesus humbled himself, he who was rich made himself poor in order that he might enrich others or that he might exalt sinners like us. This is not just some disagreement at a, at a party, at a Pharisee's house. Jesus is getting to the essence of the gospel here when he talks about this. And so there's a, there's a bit of a call for us that, that is reflected in Hebrews 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and to bear the reproach that he endured. You see, when Jesus took on flesh and blood. Jesus didn't come as a king with all of His glory. He wasn't in the Oscar nomination crowd at the banquet. Jesus was poor. Jesus was marginalized. Jesus was cast out. And if we want anything to do with Jesus, we must join Him outside the city. We must join Him amongst the outcasts. Not the in-crowd. Not the self-reliant and the proud and boastful. Some of what this means is that in our present circumstances, we should be content with a lowly place. Whether that's a lowly place of work, a lowly place of ministry, a lowly place of family. Instead of craving power and honor. Which is what all these people at this party were doing. They were craving power and honor, climbing over one another in this game of musical chairs. God may raise you up in the present, but our great hope is really is in the revelation of salvation, not in being raised up in the present. You see, Mr. Dropsy, not the ruling Pharisees, not the spiritual elite. Mr. Dropsy, the man who doesn't belong, he is the one who here represents the community of God's people. For as Paul noted at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, not many of you were wise, not many of you were powerful, not many of you were nobles, but God chose the despised thing of this world, things of this world to shame the Oscars crowd. I just pick it on them. It's easy. They shouldn't take it personally. Jesus cast down the self-important and lifts up the lowly at the great feast. And so thirdly, Jesus receives the helpless that the world casts aside. It's very similar to what we said, but it's eh, slightly different. Feasts, as I mentioned, where opportunities are intended to be opportunities to bless those who couldn't pay you back. And so Jesus says this, don't invite the people who can pay you back. Now, that shouldn't be seen as absolute. It's okay to invite your parents. It's okay to invite your brother. That's not really what Jesus He's really getting at this social climbing aspect. But we should include those who are unable to give back who are unable to host the next time, who are unable to host ever, perhaps. 
And he, he illustrates this with a parable about a great feast. We're not told what kind of feast it is, but it was a great feast. And this feast is intended to be a picture of salvation. Why? Well, one, because it was a great spread. And in, in Scripture we see a number of places where God, at the end of time, will spread out this great meal and a great feast for His people. For instance, Isaiah 25. Revelation 19. But it's not just the great spread, it's also the great fellowship. Feasts aren't just about having a meal and being on your way. It's not about having your own private table. Uh, It's about celebrating with all of these other people. And so it's not just the food, but it's also the fellowship that's intended to be there. A picture of the fact that God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. That earliest of promises in the Old Testament. And so uh, this feast, I believe, is meant to be a picture of the gospel uh, that you are provided for, uh, that you're able to celebrate, but you're celebrating in the presence of God. And here we have a double invitation. There was an initial invitation with an RSVP. So the host can know how much food to provide. Because he has to have his animals slaughtered. And he has to have his servants go to the market to make sure there's enough vegetables and fruit and nuts and whatever else they might eat at this feast. There's no refrigerators, so there's not going to be much in the way of leftovers. You want to make sure that what you have to eat is sufficient for the people who are going to show up. So you need to know who's going to show. And so, when all the preparation is done, and all the food is ready, it's sort of like, instead of ringing the bell, like like some families did, um, you know, dinner... You sent out the servants, and they went to the people who had RSVP'd, and they said, it's time to eat. The feast has been prepared. Come and enjoy in the presence of my master. And instead of those people going, awesome, I'm on my way, they start coming up with excuses. I just bought land. I have to go look at it. Wouldn't you look at it before you bought it? <laughs> Don't you have tomorrow and every other day after that to look at your land? Why are you suddenly not coming to this feast? Oh, I have five new yoke of oxen. I've got to check them out. What? You didn't check them out before you bought them? I have a new wife. What happens here is that these are things that are um, rationale for not partaking in a military campaign in the Old Testament. But here they're used as excuses for a feast, for the enjoyment of salvation. It's, it's, that's similar to us. I mean, we, I mean, how many of you have oxen? Anybody have oxen? Come on, no one has a yoke of oxen? Of course not. But sometimes we give excuses like, I'd come to your house, but my favorite show is on. In the day of DVRs, that's not as common, but still. I have a new car. I want to test drive it for the next day or so. 
Or maybe in this crowd, I have a new gun that I want to try out at the range. <laughs> For me, it might be, I've got a new book that I want to read. The book is still going to be there. These are not excuses that should be given. What's going on here is that Jesus is referring to the, to the reality that the prophets of the Old Testament had issued the initial invitation and now Jesus in his earthly ministry is saying that the feast has begun, but the God's people, particularly the religious, I almost said religious right, sorry, uh, the religious elite, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're saying, no, thank you. Have fun. I'm sorry, but I'm going to have fun here. Rejected by the scribes and the Pharisees, the invitation now goes out to Mr. Dropsy and all of the crippled. The Essenes, which was an ascetic group um, at, Jesus, at that time, who the Qumran community, who really focused even more than the Pharisees on purity. Okay, they're the, they're the ones who withdrew from common society, whereas the Pharisees remained within common society. So uh, the Essenes deemed that those people, on the basis of some Old Testament passages, were the ones that would never experience the kingdom of God. And here Jesus is saying, those are the very ones who are going to experience the kingdom of God. These are the very ones that I'm going to bring in, that I'm going to compel, not with force, but to let them know that this is not a prank, this is not a joke, this is not like the movie Carrie or the book Carrie, whichever you're familiar with, where the outcast girl is brought to the prom just so they can play a joke on her. That there's no shoe that's going to drop, that the invitation is real, it is honest, it is authentic, and you will experience salvation. That's what's going on. The fulfillment of the promises like we see in Isaiah 35 is taking place. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That all that Adam has done will be undone. And so we see that salvation is not based on performance. It's not based on how beautiful you are. It's not based on how smart you are and how socially smart that you might be. But salvation is a gift that is based on Jesus who alone qualifies and gives His qualification to others. Best performance of a righteous man. Jesus of Nazareth. Always, forever, and only. What are we to think of as we read this? It is common to think that the culture, sorry, the church must reach the elite of the culture. I've had friends who've said this. If only a famous businessman came to faith. Jesus doesn't need famous businessmen to come to faith for the gospel to be seen as powerful. The gospel is seen to be powerful when ordinary people with ordinary problems and ordinary sins are coming to faith. We don't have to cater to the elites, but rather 
we call out to those that society has tended to cast aside. We take in the people that society tends to cast aside, the widows and the orphans. We call them in because Jesus calls them in. Because these are people who have nothing to offer in the scramble for the seats of honor. Mr. Dropsy doesn't move fast. In that game of of musical chairs, he's not going to get anywhere close to the seat of honor in time. And neither is the leper or the woman issuing blood or the the other hosts of people that Jesus healed. They're not going to scramble to get a seat of honor. But Jesus will remove those people who do get there from those seats and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Have a seat. As the Father has loved me, so I love you, and so He loves you. Come, have a seat at a table at this banquet I've prepared for the people that I love who didn't always love me. Do we see the graciousness of God, the kindness of God in the midst of this? These are the ones Jesus will honor. So the Oscars reflect the attitudes that tend to prevail within our culture. We look to the beautiful, we look to the successful, and think that's where it's at. But there are people that matter. And then there are the rest of us. Sin continually corrupts the very good things that God intends, like these feasts and even like worship. That instead of examples of mercy and compassion, they quickly degenerate into struggles for status, for showing off, for self-righteousness. And Jesus is going to turn all this stuff on its head. In fact, here in Luke 14, He's already begun to turn all of these things on their heads with His healing and with the parables that He tells. But it's more than that. Jesus Himself became marginalized cast out and he bore our reproach so that we can be exalted brought close and share in his eternal glory and so I think this text invites us to confess our own craving for status our own desires to be in to be successful to be somebody, anybody. To confess our cravings for status or stature. To confess our need to be recognized and honored. And to receive Christ's honor so that we can begin to walk in humility. Offering this same Jesus and His glory to other people who have none of their own. Let's pray. Father, it is easy for us to exalt ourselves. We all struggle with pride. And so we struggle with 
seeking honor, seeking respect, wanting to be approved by men. And we ask that the gospel of Jesus Christ would set us free from that. That this gift of acceptance with the Father would free us from that inner clamor that we feel and we experience. It says, hey me, look at, hey you, look at me. Father, we confess the damage this done, this does to community. Forgive us. Help us to walk in humility so that we can live in harmony with one another, so that we're willing to associate with people that we think are lower than ourselves, so that we're not wise in our own eyes, but dependent upon you for wisdom. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.